Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Over the last few weeks, we've had members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus on the show to talk about several issues, including the legalization of cannabis. And today we scheduled the vice chair of the caucus, State Representative Bobby Gibson. He's represented Bloomfield and part of Windsor since 2018. Now, with uh, live radio, sometimes what we plan doesn't exactly pan out. So right now we are waiting to hear from State Representative Bobby Gibson, who uh, confirmed that he would be on the show today, and he has not yet connected. So we hope to have that conversation with Representative Bobby Gibson soon. And if you are uh, represent, if he represents your town, a Bloomfield, or part of Windsor, if there are questions or issues happening in your community and you want to ask that question, we want you to join as well. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I believe Representative Gibson has finally connected. Representative, can you hear me? It looks like Representative Gibson, you're muted. If you could unmute and we can start the show. Can you hear me now? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Representative Gibson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, we're glad that you were able to join us, and we definitely want to talk to you about your role in the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, as well as the time that you have represented Bloomfield and Bloomfield and part of Windsor. So uh, remind us, uh, some of the lawmakers I speak to have been in the General Assembly for a long time. You were elected, I believe, by special election in 2018, uh, and you've been a longtime educator. Tell me what drew you to the General Assembly. Well, thank you, Nelson. That's actually a good question. Um, but I first have to say good morning once again, and I apologize for being a little tardy. I'm going to have to give myself a detention. Um, but actually what happened is um, we started summer school, and uh, the custodians didn't know in my school that I had this interview this morning. And so they started moving stuff around, and uh, it, it started a little bit of a problem. But I'm, I'm settled now, and thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, so I am an educator. I'm an, I'm an administrator at the Carmen Aries Middle School in Bloomfield. And um, what, um, you can hear the, uh, the intercom there. <laughs> um, what happened was um, I was a, a longtime um, educator and coach. And so um, I, I spent many years um, coaching athletes in um, just about every sport, track, football, uh, basketball. And um, I dedicated my, my, my life to that. And so by doing that, I, I really got to know my community. I got to know the state. I got to know the people um, in which I, I served as both a coach and and, and a um, educator. And then when it came time for um, me to move on from coaching, um, I knew there were a lot of topics and ideas that needed to be addressed in my community. And so when the opportunity came for the state represent, representative seat in Bloomfield, Windsor to be vacated, uh, the former state representative became a judge, um, I decided it was my time to, to serve. And so I'm, I'm glad I did. 
So let's talk about uh, your work uh, within the General Assembly related to some major issues that have passed through the legislature this last session. Let's start with legalizing cannabis. I understand you actually voted against this bill. I know when you were elected, uh, this this cannabis uh, issue has been before the legislature for several years. And so uh, you have said that, you know, it's important to have uh, communities of color as part of this discussion. And I wanted to know why you eventually voted no on this particular bill. So it depends on on what hat um, you put on, what lens you look through. Um, I have to say that the first and foremost, as um, I know we're on radio, but um, I, I work in a school and I'm a teacher and administrator. And so it, it's very hard for me as an administrator, as an educator, to say to my kids, don't do drugs, don't do alcohol, be responsible, um, live a clean life. Um, as a former science teacher, um, to teach about nutrition and, and healthy lifestyles, and then go ahead and support cannabis. Um, so that was that was big for me, um, as well as some other issues as far as being a father and um, some of the things I believe in. Um, I, I know that it was very important to some folks um, concerning the, the equity piece, uh, making sure that um, the communities that were affected by the, the war on drugs um, were given their just due. But when, it, when I had to weigh all of my options um, and really concentrate and, and meditate on my decision. Um, my role as an educator won out. Uh, when we've uh, spoken with uh, Representative Reyes and, and other members of the Black and Puerto Rican Commission, I'm sorry, Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, rather, uh, definitely a split within the caucus. Not everybody was on board with this particular issue, but it was something that a majority of members in the caucus ended up supporting. And so can you talk through some of the discussions that you had about this uh, related to the vote? And, you know, as we now look to how the state's going to implement this, uh, some of the things that you're concerned about are hoping to be addressed as Connecticut moves forward on cannabis. Well, the biggest thing is that um, the members um, wanted a bill that um, did just um, to the to the state, and it wasn't just about um, the revenue, uh, which you would most often hear. Um, it wasn't just about we're going to be the last uh, because of there's there's neighboring states who are going to do it, and you just have to drive a couple of minutes to say Massachusetts um, to get cannabis. Um, it had to do with making sure that again the, the communities that were affected by the war on drugs um, were were giving an an, an equitable um, look as far as being made whole. Um, it had to do with um, jobs, um, not having um, those who. Um, have the you know the top percentage of, as far as earnings control the cannabis industry in this situation, whereas the top um, percentage or percentile of folks who earn the most money will um, benefit from cannabis more so than the communities that were decimated and destroyed by the war on drugs. Um, and there's other factors as, as well. So th- th- a lot of discussion and a lot of um, thought had to go with what the bill would look like, what the legislation would look like. Um, so I, I will say um, that the, the, the authors of the bill um, did a very good job as far as that is concerned. Um, and so, you know, you had to go back and forth. I mean, um, there's a reason why um, cannabis um, is a difficult decision. 
Um, but I, when it's all said and done, um, I, I think those who voted for it and voted against it did it for the reasons in which they truly believe um, that they are representing um, their constituents. Mm. You're still an educator now. Uh, legalization of cannabis is the law in Connecticut. So how do you reconcile that message with your students uh, who uh, may still have questions or you worry about the message it sends to them, Representative? That's a very good question. And, and actually, as we um, are here this summer uh, preparing for a new school year, that is something that we're going to have to, as, as educators, uh, address and look at. And, you know, it, being an educator, I, I, I can always say that everything almost starts with with education. So it's here. So we have to make sure that um, as adults and as educators, we hold professional developments to understand totally um, what is cannabis, um, um, what are the chemical makeups that make um, make up cannabis, um, what are the effects on the body, and sort of sort of like when you know when we teach um, students about alcohol and. Um, alcohol abuse and responsible use. We have to do the same thing with cannabis. Um, so it, it's, again, it's, it's, it's about education. And now that it's here, it's about embracing it um, because um, it, it is here. And we want to make sure that our students are, are well equipped for this new world um, so that they can be successful um, if when they turn a certain age, uh, 21, if they decide to uh, partake in it. And also, since it is here, and we talked about the equity piece, um, if they decide to get in on the industry, um, making sure that our students aren't left behind and making sure that um, they can get a piece of this revenue um, um, stream that's um, that was voted on. When you mean that the revenue stream, so the money that goes back into communities uh, to help uh, programs that that children and youth uh, may partake in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so for example, I can speak from my district here in Bloomfield, Windsor. Um, Bloomfield is a school system that is uh, perhaps in the sense nineties as far as uh, students of color, um, and I can say as well um, that. We have to make sure that, um, and so from my standpoint, that my students, again, understand the effects of cannabis and what it can do to you. But also, um, just because I voted no, I now, as a responsible educator, need to make sure my, my students understand that the business side um, and that they can um, perhaps, as far as revenues are concerned, benefit from um, getting in on that industry. So. Um, so that, you know, there aren't left behind in this in this whole process. You're hearing State Representative Bobby Gibson. He represents Bloomfield and part of Windsor. He's vice chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. If he's your representative, if you have a question for him, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. You're also vice chair of the legislature's General Law Committee. This committee oversees the State Department of Consumer Protection. We know DCP is going to be putting a system in place to regulate both cannabis sellers and growers. And so uh, just going back to a previous question I'd asked you, some of the key issues you're going to be watching as this process unfolds, Representative Gibson. Well, again, making sure that um, those who um, decide to get in on the industry are given a fair share, are given a fair, um, a fair um, shot at, at becoming um, growers or, um, or, or sellers. Um, just making sure that um, the the revenues as far as where they're 
supposed to go are actually going there. Um, and just making sure that um, the spirit of the legalization um, is, is kept uh, is kept here. Is, is, is those who um, um, who have the, the most as far as the top percentile earners in the state aren't just benefiting. A part of the work in how this will unfold uh, relates to this uh, equity commission that I believe uh, the legislature, the governor and others all have a role to play in who sits on this commission. Who do you want to see on this panel? Well, um, in order for it to be equitable, um, I, I think you need to have folks who um, represent communities that were um, affected. And so we do have um, quite a few members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus who represent those communities. And we also have members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus who were um, champions for this piece of legislation. So I think it would be imperative that we have uh, um, legislators um, who um, are on the pulse of the communities. Um, we have um, stakeholders from um, nonprofits that, or, or community organizations that um, represent these communities um, so that they can make sure that, again, the spirit of the equitable portion of the um, legislation is carried through. Uh, in the spring, I, I believe you wrote an op-ed calling uh, for a ban on flavored tobacco products. This bill, uh, there was quite a process in the legislative session, ended up not getting passed. Uh, talk about why you want to see this ban happen in Connecticut and some of the barriers in place. Well, um, I'll start with the barriers. Um, I, I remember having quite a few Zoom meetings, whereas um, the thought was not um, instructing adults on what they should do. We should not be telling adults what they can and cannot do. And um, I, I, would, I found that statement to be problematic because um, we do live in a nation of laws um, and how we get along and how we live our lives um, is we're all subjective to laws. And so we're actually, um, when we elect our officials to do the jobs that we do, um, to, to come up with laws, we're in essence instructing adults on how to live their lives. So um, as you know, um, the, uh, the, the, the flavored tobacco, the, the vaping, um, is something that's, that's not healthy. Um, it's something that can cause um, various health concerns. And so when you are exposing your public to flavored um, tobacco um, products, when you're exposing your public to cigarettes, that are um, very strong, um, and you and you're taking those of us who may not have the, um, the the stamina or the strength to resist these things. You're causing your your society to have higher um, health risk and health problems. And so, why add to that? Um, I, I can attest. You know, I, I I've taught in various school districts and I've lived in various neighborhoods, um, inner city and suburbs. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's something to go down to a, a, a corner store and see a, a, a person um, go to the counter and ask for a, a Lucy. A Lucy is a loose cigarette. And they ask for these Lucy's, these loose cigarettes, because they can't afford to get a pack of cigarettes. And so they get charged these singular, um, these Lucy's um, at a higher rate per Lucy, if you will, um, than if they just bought the whole, um, whole pack. And so that's a way of, of keeping p 
people down and that's a way of, of taking away again from those who are less of us um the flavor um products um those um are, are targeted um to those of us and it's usually um, students and again as an educator that's the biggest hat i wear outside being a father um you know you're exposing our, our students to um these things and so you know i've gotten so many calls from um constituents who are very happy that um i opposed um the, fl the flavored um the flavored tobacco products um the, the cigarettes that are um being sold loosely and and have um an addictive flair to them um because I, I, I think it's the right thing to do. When we talk about how these products have been marketed, especially to communities of color, when you see the way menthol cigarettes are advertised uh, to uh, people in our country, including uh, many black residents, uh, you know, in your op-ed, you had said, let's make 2021 the year we say no to big tobacco. And now Philip Morris is moving its headquarters to the state. How did you react to that news? You know, um, back, um, you know, years ago when um, there was the campaign to end um, big tobacco, um, it felt as though it was a step in the right direction. Uh, but now it seems like we are going back towards where we started. Um, you'll see more um, movies and shows now where there's uh, people smoking and where cigarettes are being um, um, seen in, in higher guard. And, and, and in movies and you'll see more billboards and you see more signs for smoking and having tobacco companies move into the state um, is very problematic and is very concerning, um, especially since you know, we spend so much time um, educating our, our, our students and educating our public on not to smoke and the, the dangers of smoking. So it is very concerning, it's very problematic. Um, and it just um, speaks to um, the money that's um, behind big tobacco and um, what are we as a society, what are we really listening to? Are we listening to the science? Are we, are we listening and following the education or are we following the money? I'm glad you brought up the money because when uh, this bill was being debated, I believe nonpartisan budget analysts said the state could lose nearly $200 million in tax revenue if there was a ban on menthol cigarettes. I believe Governor Lamont had proposed a ban on flavored e-cigs except for menthol cigarettes. And so that's really at the heart of this issue, isn't it? That uh, while uh, it's not good for people's health, it impacts uh, young people and other communities disproportionately, it always goes back to the money. Unfortunately, yes, it does. And, and we will, uh, yes. And so, you know, in order to have a state um, that is functioning and a society that's taking care of its citizens, yes, we must have money. However, um, we must also um, understand what are we doing um, to, our, to our citizens and what level of, um, of health do we want? What level of, of a society we want as far as um, making sure that um, we're taking care of our society. Um, there's more ways and more creative ways uh, to get revenue into the state versus um, subjecting our citizens to health concerns and health risk. And if you really think about it, um, I know I, I mentioned um, the inner cities and witnessing um, residents buying these menthol Lucy's, these, these, these cigarettes and, and all the vaping products um, that are out there, the flavored cigarettes and everything. And one of the things that, you know, wasn't brought up in the debate um, by those 
um, who were who are against the ban is that um, some of these same residents who are getting hooked, who are addicted to the menthol cigarettes, to some of these same residents who are um, having health concerns from the flavored uh, products, um, some don't even have adequate health insurance. Some of them don't even have access to um, a, a doctor who can help treat them or a, a, a facility that can help treat their, their addiction. And so what are we doing? We're creating more of a divide in our society between the haves and have-nots to, the, to, to the, those who are excelling economically and health-wise uh, versus those who are not. Um, so to be very honest with you, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a health and it's a social injustice, it's a economical, economic injustice. Um, and again, it, it just think about um, who's really um, being hurt um, by the sale of these, uh, these products. You're hearing State Representative Bobby Gibson, Vice Chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus in the General Assembly. He represents parts of Windsor and Bloomfield. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. I want to take a quick uh, caller uh, in from Hartford, Dr. Larry Deutsch. Hello, Larry. What, what would you like to tell us? Good morning, and I so much endorse the uh, the comments of uh, Bobby Gibson, as he speaks as an educator, and I speak as a doctor or pediatrician, and simply to say that um, it's the root causes, the economics, the profit-making that needs attention, and it's first and foremost, however, should be the taking care of society. That's what Bobby said, and the health justice issue in terms of uh, maintaining the health of our communities and then taking care of economic issues later with justice, but with and without the profit-making and without the stigmatization and the imprisonment, the, the mass incarceration of those guilty of an infraction of this kind. It's the health we are, he and I and all of us should be concerned with, first and foremost, of our individuals, whether they be teens or adults. We've got to get rid of these, the, uh, these drugs, including nicotine flavor or not, and cannabis, which is just not bad for the person's lungs inside. Simple as that. Well, thank you, Larry, for calling in. Uh, we're going to be back with State Representative Bobby Gibson after the break. We're going to talk about some other issues that the legislature uh, dealt with this last session. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, veto of the solitary confinement bill by uh, Governor Lamont. And we'll get, take your questions, too. Again, the number, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today is State Representative Bobby Gibson. He's on Zoom. He's vice chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, represents Bloomfield and Windsor. If you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We talked about uh, health inequities in the last segment. Let's talk about uh, the the wealth inequity in our state. Uh, Representative, uh, I know on July 1st, uh, the state's baby bonds program went into effect. The governor signed it a day earlier. This was an idea championed by Treasurer Sean Wooden, supported by your caucus. Tell us how it'll work and why this is so important. Well, again, I think um, this session really had to deal with um, the the inequities that were brought forth um, by the um, by the pandemic. Um, and when I say brought forth, we we knew that they existed. But the, they were really brought to the forefront of our, of our consciousness when the pandemic hit and, and, and who was affected the most. And to be very honest with you, as we start to exit the pandemic, hopefully, um, I, I think we're going to see a different view as far as who's going to benefit um, from the pandemic. But um, as far as baby bonds are concerned, it was a, a great idea. Um, from Treasurer Wooden. Um, I take my hat off and applaud him for coming up with it. It was an honor to work with him and to push um, that very important piece of legislation. And so what it's going to do is when a, a, a child is born into our world, and if you know if they have a certain um, economic um, standing, whereas um, you know, they may not be as um, um, blessed as some of us are economically, um, they'll have some money put aside for them. And when they turn 18, this money will be made available. Um, projections state that um, it should be around $11,000. Now, um, for some of, of the listeners, that may not be a lot of money, but um, for the majority of us out there, um, that is a really good start um, for that individual to be able to go to college, go to a trade school, to have a deposit on a, on a home, or to start a business. It's a step in trying to bridge um, that gap that we talked about in the first segment um, in our society. Um, you know, a society that's well-educated, a society in which all individuals are doing well, makes for a better society for us all. Um, more people are being able, be able to, like I said, start a business, to contribute to the economy to purchase a home, to buy different products. And so, you know, it's a trickle-down effect or a, dom- a domino effect, whereas mm-hmm. everyone will benefit. So it's, it's, a, it's a great program. Um, and I'm excited that it passed. And uh, hopefully um, it will make sure that um, us as a state um, continue to climb. And so just to reiterate the basics, so this program puts a little more than $3,000 into the account for children born to low-income parents. That money grows over time. And as you stated, Representative, it can be used in a variety of ways. But what assurances uh, do we have that the state will continue placing money into these accounts as the years go by? 
Well, as it stands right now, um, there's a certain amount of years whereas the um, funds will be there, so that's in law. Um, it's going to have to be revisited at some at some point in time in the future to make sure that the program continues. But I think what's going to happen is that we're going to start to see the benefit um, from it and that the state will, um, will, will move forth. And actually, this is something um, that on a national level, um, other states are paying attention to. So as we as a country try to um, make sure we close these economic gaps, I, I think that um, the success of one will be the success of many and that um, is something that will continue. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, we wanted to talk with you about the governor's veto of a bill that would have placed new restrictions on the use of solitary confinement in Connecticut jails and prisons. Uh, when the governor vetoed this bill, instead put forth an executive order, he wrote, I'm not signing this legislation because as written, it puts the safety of incarcerated persons and correction employees at substantial risk. So I wanted to get your reaction to that veto and the executive order that uh, he then put forth. Um, so it's, it's concerning uh, because, you know, we spoke to a, a lot of people who have loved ones in the correctional facilities um, and how they're, they're treated. And so I, I think what's going to happen is those who are against the bill are going to have to come forth and um, speak to us so we can make sure that there's some adjustments to be made. Because as I can speak as, a, as the vice chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, um, we heard mostly from the families of those who are and who are formerly incarcerated, um, that you know, someone could be put um, in solitary confinement for um, reasons that may not deem uh, really appropriate, and be in there for a substantial amount of time um, before they're taken out, and that's problematic for me um, as an as an educator because you know, um, it's, it's when, when someone commits a crime. Um, they're put into um, a correctional facility to be corrected. That's what we call it, right? And we have correctional officers. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that those persons who have committed crime, they serve their, their consequence. And when they come out, they're corrected and they, 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 they have a better way. So, you know, we really have to look at prison reform and how we um, treat those um, who are in our society. You know, we don't have a throwaway society. We have a society where um, we, 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 we give second chances. We have a society where we try to have people who um, have committed these crimes um, come out and be positive contributors to our society. So uh, again, this still is something that needs to be looked at, um, something that um, needs to um, be adjusted if need be. Um, the, the, the talk was uh, we wouldn't have enough um, correctional officers. Well, perhaps that's something that we need to look at. Maybe we need to have um, more correctional officers. Or again, maybe we need to look at prison reform and how we are um, treating these people who are incarcerated, um, making sure that, um, again, when they have served their, their time, when they've done, when they've served their consequence, um, they can be positive contributors to our society and not get caught up in the prison system. And I will end with this, you know, uh, I, again, um, I will talk from being the vice chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. You know, we, we have a state whereas um, people of color are not the majority, 
but in our prison system, um, we make up the majority of, of the inmates, which again is, is problematic. How could that happen? And so, um, you know, you, you have people of color who are being put in solitary confinement. And, um, you know, again, we, we've heard a lot of, of cases why, why that's a problem. Uh, today, I believe House leaders from both uh, um, parties will be meeting to discuss uh, some motor vehicle thefts that, that have been happening in our state. And I believe some of the, the people that have perpetrated this are teenagers. Uh, we've heard from Republican lawmakers in the House who say that the state needs to put more teeth into the juvenile justice system uh, by allowing young people to be held in detention for longer periods without a court order. Also, allowing more police chases of stolen cars and making it easier for an underage person to be classified as a risk to public safety. Uh, this, uh, these proposals, these ideas have circulated over the last few years. But what's your take as someone who works with young people? Uh, is the solution to put them away and that solves the problem? It sounds like this is what some of the Republican leaders are saying, that there needs to be stricter uh, punishments for these types of acts. Yeah, I, I, I wish um, I could have you say, say that again, but I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I, I wish that we could have, um, for the visual learners out there, a, a every time you for every word you just said, we could have the words scream across the screen so you can read exactly what you just said. Because um, maybe that would drive home um, the solution or, or why that's problematic as far as um, uh, people on the other side of the aisle, um, some of their 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 wants. Um, we have a society where we have, we have juveniles, we have, we have young, youngsters who um, for certain reasons have committed crime. And to put these youngsters in uh, confinement for longer periods of time to make it easier for these, these youngsters to be put away, um, just let that sit in your mind for a second. You have children at the beginning of their lives who have committed some infractions. And, you know, there's no one on this planet who is without um, guilt, um, who has lived a, a perfect life. Um, no one. And so um, to take these youngsters and make it easier to incarcerate, to uh, put them away, um, what, what kind of society are we, are we, are we building? What, what are we doing as far as trying to get these youngsters to uh, to be positive contributors to our society? Um, a lot of this has to do with, with education. A lot of this has to do with funding. A lot of this has to do with programs in which we meet the needs of, of families and meet the needs of, of these children. Um, wh why are they committing these crimes at, at a, a certain age? Um, you know, no one's no one's born um, a criminal. These are things that are learned, or these are things that are, are developed based on your um, social economic situation. So what are we doing as a society to making sure that instead of these individuals, for example, um, stealing a car, which is, which is horrible, and there's been some horrible things done um, in these car thefts, um, what are we doing in society so these youngsters aren't committing these crimes? Um, again, I don't think a kid, you know, is born, goes to preschool and kindergarten and says, I want to steal a car. There's something that we're not doing as a society 
um, to make sure that um, we are reaching these kids and making sure that we're, um, we're, we're, we're educating them and making sure that we're, 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 we're doing what we need as far as meeting their needs to make sure that they're successful. Um, I, I do believe we have to address crime. Yes, of course. But again, what does it do to take a teenager who is, uh, I don't know, must throw out an age uh, 15 years old who was stolen a car, keep incarcerating them, um, getting them a record, exposing them to the, the, the evils and the, the bad parts of, of, of society. Um, what, what type of person is that uh, person going to be when they become an adult? Um, are they going to be a, con a positive contributor to society who uh, is, you know, who can buy a home or a condo or, um, and have a job and, and contribute to our economy? Or are they going to have a black mark on them, um, both um, mentally as well as um, their record is concerned, and not be a positive contributor to our society? So as a society, we have to decide what, what do we want, um, which, which direction we want to, we want to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, last question for you before we head to break. I believe a special session will be scheduled soon on whether to extend the governor's pandemic emergency authority. Uh, what's your take on that? Do you think that should be extended, Representative? Well, let me ask this question. Um, well, let me just make the statement. You know, when the, when the pandemic hit, um, we um, were in the um, close proximity to to the to the hottest spots as far as the numbers of, of COVID cases. Um, and we were able as a state to, uh, regardless of how you view it, regardless if you say it was infringed, your freedoms were infringed on or not, we were able to take care of our society. The COVID numbers didn't spike as, as they could have, you know, being in close proximity to some of our, our to bigger states. Um, I, I think the governor had did a great job again um, and keeping us safe. Uh, he did a great job as far as making sure that we got through the pandemic um, without um, a lot of harm. Um, and, and in opening the state, you know, we're, we're opening our state. And, you know, again, we haven't seen a lot of um, outbreaks of COVID cases and spikes. Even with the new variant out there looming, um, I think, you know, we're, we're doing a good job. So, um, you know, you can't make everyone happy. Um, but I think that the governor's usage and us as a legislature um, monitoring his usage of his executive powers, I think it is, is, we've done very well with it. And I'm confident that we will continue doing well um, bipartisanly. And I should say that the governor uh, said the emergency authority would be helpful in making the state eligible for federal funds. And so we'll have to leave it there. Representative uh, Bobby Gibson, thank you for joining us. And no more detention for you. I think uh, <laughs> you've done a good job uh, on the show. We appreciate your time today. I appreciate it. And th thanks for having me. Um, I would love to come back again. Um, this is very helpful. And thank you for your service. Um, you know, I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm getting a lot of text messages. So you, you, you are reaching a lot of people and you're doing a very good job. So thank you for what you do. Uh, this is where we live. Thank you, Representative Bobby Gibson. Uh, coming up, we're going to get some analysis from T CT News Junkies Hugh McQuaid. He's been covering a lot of issues uh, in our state. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, data show downloads of mental health apps rose nearly 200% during the pandemic. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a look at the therapist in your pocket. We hope you join us for that. Now, we just heard from State Representative Bobby Gibson, Vice Chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus in the General Assembly. For more context on some of the issues we brought up, joining us now on Zoom, Hugh McQuaid, who's a reporter for CT News Junkie. Hi, Hugh. Welcome to the show. Lucy, thanks for having me. So we started out talking about cannabis, and it's clear that not all members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus agreed with the final bill that has become law. It'll be interesting to see how the next uh, steps will shape out. What do you know about um, when this commission, this equity commission, uh, will be finalized? Well, last I heard, um, the House leaders or legislative leaders were looking for people to sort of apply to put on these, this uh, commission. So the, the membership, I think, is still in flux a little bit to be determined. Um, it's worth noting, too, that Mr. Uh, Representative Gibson was not alone in sort of opposing this bill. It was, it was a pretty tight vote in both chambers. Um, I think in the House, there was 12 Democrats who voted against it, along with a bunch of Republicans. In the Senate, it came down to two votes. And even going back uh, a decade or so, when they decriminalized it in Connecticut and made it a ticket for rather than an arrest for small amounts, that vote was a tie vote in the Senate and had to be broken by the lieutenant governor. So like historically, this has always been kind of a tough vote for the legislature. It was interesting to hear from Representative Gibson, because he's an educator, about the message that it sends uh, to young people and the importance of education. Do we know how much money is set aside uh, in this cannabis law that will help with prevention? I think I, I'm not sure exactly what the dollar amount is, but I know that that was the subject of debate throughout the session. This this bill was um, it was kind of a moving target all session, uh, and the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus was a real one of the biggest players in in those discussions. So it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. They're still working on some of the regulations, um, the the possession. Uh, of like 1.5 to 5 ounces, depending on the situation, has already been, it's legal now, but a lot of the recreational and commercial sales aspect of it still have to sort of play out over the next few years. Including uh, growing at home. <laughs> right. I think it's 2023 before people can grow actual plants in their houses. I think it's, if I remember right, it's three plants or six plants per individual with a cap of 12 um, but that's something that, um, for instance, the, I think the Black and Puerto Rican caucus pushed for that the administration did not want to see in the bill was that homegrown aspect. So they really did have a huge impact on, on that bill. Let's shift to something that's happening today at the state capitol. I'd mentioned Representative Gibson, House leaders meeting to talk about juvenile car thefts. This has been an, a conversation, an, an issue that's come up the last several years. Uh, just give us a little background on why they're talking about it today. Well, as, as you said, it's been something that was talked about all session. Um, it kind of came up to a head this, or actually last week, there was an accident in New Britain, which a a 53-year-old jogger was killed by a, uh, well, police say it was driv a car driven by a, a teenager. And come to find out the teenager had like something like 13 arrests in the past three and a half years, I think. Um, so that sort of put in motion this, this meeting they're having today. House Republicans put out a press release and, you know, um, 
the House Speaker and people on the Judiciary Committee are all coming in to talk about it today. You have reported on this. You spoke to Ken Barone at CCSU's Institute for Municipal Policy and Regional Policy as well. So what does the data show when we think about uh, why these uh, car thefts have increased? It's not something that's isolated here in our state. No, according to uh, Mr. Barone, this this is sort of a thing that you're seeing all over the world, not just the country. Um, And he chalks it up to listen, a lot of kids, you know, they maybe before were in school and schools you know, went on hold sort of or was remote for most last year. And some people never phoned in, right? You have programs that weren't happening. So a lot of young people with time on their hands that, um, I guess, you know, got up to trouble. The question for folks now is what do you do about it? Or do, do you do anything about it? Um, Ken Barone thinks that sort of, if you just sort of let things get back to normal, that this will sort of naturally correct itself as as programs get back to normal but um you know it's tough because nobody's arguing it really has been a problem it it has jumped up this year so it's sort of hard for legislators to ignore it you talk to um police too i mean anecdotally i've spoken to police officers who say like they'll they'll catch some of these kids uh stealing cars they'll bring them in and then a few few hours later they might be back out there doing it uh, so sometimes I think police feel they don't have adequate tools to, to sort of address this. But I don't think anybody likes the idea of locking up more more kids, right? Um, so it's it's a it's really a tough uh, tough call, and we'll see what happens with this meeting. I don't know that I expect a, a special session on this, but we'll see what they say when it's all over. Hmm. Well, when we hear about resources coming into communities, I mean, isn't that part of the discussion as well? When we think about maybe programs to help uh, children at risk uh, before uh, they're getting into this type of activity, what has happened in the pandemic? Have these programs ceased to exist? And what kind of prevention there to help children uh, before they end up having um, an arrest on their record? Right. Yeah. Um, actually, even before this accident happened, um the governor was out there talking about, he was saying that they were going to spend, I think, five, five million maybe on um, criminal justice type issues of federal funding that was coming in. Um, and one of the things he talked about was was this car theft issue. And another another question people sort of are, are asking about this event that triggered it is this kid apparently had so many, um, some of the things he was accused of, arrested for. Uh, were pretty bad things like uh, assault with a knife and stuff like that. The, people are asking why why wasn't he in the system already? Um, because it, the, it it seems like the way the laws are written now, he there's no real reason why he shouldn't have already been detained. But I guess, I guess we'll see how it all shakes out. And lastly, there's a special session uh, coming online, what, next week uh, to handle this emergency authority uh, extension. Um, This relates to whether the state can continue to receive federal funding. Do you anticipate this is going to pass, Hugh? Yeah, I would imagine it it passes. It's just a question of how, uh, to what extent and for how long. I think the governor... The legislature this year passed a bill that sort of curtails a little bit the governor's emergency authority. And part of that is time limits on how long these things can be extended for. Uh, And one of those, I think his limit now is six months, 180 days. The question is whether or not he'll ask for 180 days or something smaller. And um, 
as you said, some federal benefits, I think, are tied to our declaration status. I think people say it comes down to SNAP benefits. Um, Republicans are arguing that you could sort of have a more tailored declaration to just apply to that. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, the governor says he wants to keep in, in place some other stuff like the mask mandate for people who are not vaccinated indoors in public, um, some sort of flexibility to do vaccination testings, that kind of thing. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I, I, I think that we'll hear something from his office probably this week and then maybe next week they'll come in and debate that. You've been hearing Hugh McQuaid. He's a reporter for CT News Junkie. We'll be sure to tweet out some links uh, to your reporting as well as your colleagues. Hugh, thanks for the context. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Lucy. This is, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our show today produced by Matt Dwyer with help from Robin Doyne Aiken. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>